1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world-leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. On this week's episode, we are joined by Ian McGilchrist to discuss his new book, The Matter with Things, our brains, our delusions, and the end-making of the world. With a background in psychiatry, neuroimaging, and philosophy, Ian McGilchrist has a unique perspective on the world, the mind, and everything in between. Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, writer, and former Oxford literary scholar, He is committed to the idea that the mind and the brain can be understood only by seeing them in the broadest possible context, an idea that is fundamental to his two most famous works, The Master and His Emissary, and The Matter with Things. This interview was recorded at one of our monthly I.I. Live Online events. If you want to check out the video footage of this recording, or book a place at our next I.I. Live event, just follow the link in the show notes. It's now time to welcome Ian McGilchrist to Philosophy for Our Times. Welcome everyone to this big sofa event of this month's I.I. Live and I'm delighted today to have as my guest Ian McGilchrist to talk about one of the key themes of his new book, The Matter with Things, Our Brains, Our Delusions and the Unmaking of the World. Thanks very much, Alexis. Glad to be one here. of the key themes of your new book that I'd like to talk to you about today is that reality isn't made of things, but my common sense seems to tell me otherwise, right? The world looks to me to be made very much of things, to be made of tables and chairs and my laptop that I'm looking at now and people and trees. And then on the other hand, we have physics that tells us or seems to tell us that the world that at at its most fundamental level is made out of particles, out of forces and fields. So what's wrong with those two pictures of reality? There's nothing wrong with the idea of things. I'm very content that people should go on
0: thinking there are things and treating them as such. But ultimately, I believe that all is in process, that as Heraclitus said, everything flows. And I'm a follower of A. N. Whitehead, uh, who of course was a process philosopher. And I also hold the slightly, perhaps at the outset, rather paradoxical sounding view that relationships are prior to the relata. The, the, what, what primarily exists is relations, relationships, and things are what emerge from this network. It's perfectly okay to, to see them as things and to focus on them and all that, but it's just not the best way of thinking about composing a, a view of the cosmos that it's made up of things. Rather, as a body is not actually made up of organs that are developed and then connected to one another, the whole organism uh, comes into being by the differentiation into the organs that can later,
1: after the fact, be identified as parts. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to this position of thinking of the world as being primarily made out of relations, not things? Well, it's it's something that I suppose has
0: come to me rather gradually over a long time. I I suppose I've been thinking about this sort of thing for 50 years or more. Um, And right at the beginning of those 50 years, I thought that um, the whole was not the same as the sum of the parts and that you couldn't necessarily put something together in the way that you can take it apart. So that's always been part of my my philosophical outlook on the world. The, The idea that things are relationships follows partly from that in that um not just an organism as we would normally think of it but a a piece of music is not better understood by taking it apart note by note but is in fact a seamless web of relations and it's that seamless web of relations that is real
1: so as you mentioned before there's something quite radical about your position in that you see relations as as fundamental as kind of prior to the things that are related and you say somewhere that the things that are related only become what they are in and through the relationships they belong to. Precisely. It's the context that makes them what they are. Exactly. Now, you admit that this position is, can seem at least paradoxical, right? It poses the question of how we really can make sense of relations without already having in view the very things that are supposed to be related. So how do you avoid this apparent paradox? But I don't think it's difficult, Uh, as you say, and this has been, again, a
0: lifelong concern, certainly since my 20s when I was first at All Souls, and looking at the way we approach works of art, art, poems, um, so forth, it seemed to me that one of the problems was the idea that um, we took things out of context. As soon as you start sitting in the seminar room, you begin the process of disembodying, abstracting, removing from context, making the unique general and making the implicit explicit, all of these working in the exact opposite direction to the one in which the work itself is trying to lead you. And I think that that's not something peculiar about art. It's something about life and that art and poetry and so on are just examples of organic beings, as Aristotle indeed thought they were, and not
1: examples of mechanisms or um, building blocks. And you you do say that sort of seeing the world as made of things is part of this kind of reductionist picture that much of science operates under, and the idea that in order to understand the nature of something, we need to understand its parts and the mechanics of those parts. And you accept that this approach has made science extremely successful at allowing us to manipulate the world around us, to predict it, to create new technology. Yes. Now, realists often see this argument as basically showing that science gets to the truth of what the world is like. And the argument is, look, it works. It, it allows us to do all these things that no other picture of reality allows us to do. So why is the ability to manipulate the world not proof in your view that science actually understands the world? What exactly is science missing here? Ask the sorcerer's apprentice who
0: knew exactly how to press the button but didn't really understand what he was doing. I think there's something similar here. There are two points, really. I mean, the first one I ought to make is that I insist that, as it were, we take part in reality, but we don't simply ground it or originate it. So whatever reality we encounter has something of us about it, but it also has something that is not us about it, and it's in that encounter that we find reality um, in our experience. So uh, that's the first thing, I suppose. And the the other is that when you have a very complex system, and sometimes i have a slide that illustrates a massively complex system in which there are arrows leading from just about everything to everything else there are little areas if you focus in on them where there's a chain of causation and it's not that complicated and you can intervene in it and you would no doubt have a predictable result by doing so But if you ask a different question, not how to manipulate the world, but how to understand it, you couldn't understand it by just putting together linear sequences, because that wouldn't answer to the complexity of what you're dealing with. And as um, you probably know, and anyone who's read uh, either of those books would know, I believe the raison d'etre of the left hemisphere is to manipulate the world, it's to be a very good aid to the business of grabbing and getting precisely what you want at the time but just because it does that it's not very good at understanding and that is really the 40 of the right hemisphere and this is why the two hemispheres are asymmetrical and only partially connected at all. Uh, only 2% of fibers cross the corpus callosum, the band of fibers at the base of the brain. And a lot of that traffic is inhibitory in saying, I'm dealing with this, uh, you keep out of it. So you know, it's a, it's a complex thing, what's going on in our in our brains and our minds. And it's not simply um, good enough to say, well, because I can intervene in a causal chain and create some, um, and have a, a, a certain kind of outcome, It is something rather made on the uh, model of the bike in the garage that's
1: put together from bits. What's the proof, what's the criterion by which we can be sure that we understand something rather than just able to kind of causally interfere with it?
0: If you understand better the, the, the structure of reality, you will be less often caught out by experience. So, in other words, it, 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 it's a test on experience, effectively. And the, the lovely thing that I can demonstrate and do at some length in this new book, about 400 pages length of the book, is to look at what happens when the right hemisphere is not functioning. And the answer is the left hemisphere simply doesn't understand the world. I mean, it's, it really is as simple as that. It's the almost all delusional states, hallucinations, um, misjudgments. It simply can't read people, for a start. It doesn't understand emotional and social communication, and that it's somewhat autistic, um, if you like to look at it that way. Nonetheless, the, the structure of reality is not changed. But when the right hemisphere is damaged, it is changed. I think it's fairly conclusive.
1: Let me ask you something on this because a a lot of your work originates in in sort of neuroscience research and sometimes you bring examples from theoretical physics to support your claims, but but here you've been talking a lot about this, um, you know, what what we learn by how we understand the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere and how they contribute very different things to our uh, cognitive relationship to the world. Exactly. But is there a tension there within your own philosophy, as it were? Because on the one hand, you seem to be arguing for the limits of scientific understanding, the way that science is reductionist, and it only offers us a very narrow understanding of reality, the world, ourselves. But on the other hand, it seems like you're using the findings of scientific research to ground your own picture of what science is sort of missing out, so absolutely. how do you, how do you negotiate that tension?
0: Extraordinarily easily. I, I'm a great admirer of science. I've studied science all my life. It was my first passion as a child. My father and my grandfather were scientists, and that was what I was introduced to. And um, I argue, rationally, all the way through my writing, and people say you make it very clear and you use all these things like science and reason. How come? Well, the answer is, because I think they're very valuable. I just don't think that reason can account for everything any more than I think science can. There's nothing irrational about listening to Mozart's G minor quintet. It's just super rational, trans rational,
1: not by rationality. Let me ask you about something you mentioned earlier when it came to um, understanding life uh, non-reductively. And it's a very, organisms are a very good example that you know, show us that in order to understand the parts of the organism, you somehow have to understand the whole uh, and the role that each organ plays, for example, in the body. So you can't understand, for example, what the heart is by just looking at it as an isolated organ. You need to understand what its role is within the body and the organism's life and its function of pumping blood around the body and so on. So. Someone might grant that this is, this is true when it comes to living organisms, that we can't understand them reduc- reductively. And right. someone would, might also add to that, that a lot of science, a lot of biological science doesn't do that because otherwise, you know, uh, your surgeon wouldn't, wouldn't know how to exactly go about your heart surgery if, if they only understood the heart in isolation from the rest of the body. But I guess the question is, why do you think that this is true for reality as a whole? If you take the example of music or time or flow,
0: all of these things are totally denatured as soon as you set about analyzing them. And so, I mean, none of those are things that we would normally think of as organisms. I have a a considerable chapter on time in the third part of my new book. Um, And what I'm really showing is the way the left hemisphere tries to understand it is by putting together slices but that in doing so, it absolutely misunderstands the nature of what it's dealing with. And something of the same can be said uh, about matter and consciousness, and no doubt that will come along later. But I think it's it's a way of thinking which is more sophisticated than saying, we only understand it's one directional. We only understand a thing by taking it apart. I would say it's bi-directional. We only understand what those parts are by seeing what holes they can go to compose. Uh, it says something about a certain note or whatever it might be that it can have the value it has in a certain whole, Uh, whereas once it's isolated it no longer shows this quality. So you need to be looking at the fabric that is relatively, I mean ultimately, infinitely interconnected, but of course common sense tells us that the more important things are those that are closely related, although theoretical physics may challenge that.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about theoretical physics and how you see it relating to your work. Because I, I started out by saying, well, physics tells us that the world is made of particles and fields. And, you know, physics is to this day, the most successful kind of human enterprise in terms of helping us predict what's going to happen and helping us create new technology. But you also think that science and physics in particular somehow supports your view that relations are fundamental to reality. Why is that? Generally, I'm looking at a much broader question, which is the world as
0: construed by, in my view, the far more sophisticated take of the right hemisphere is one where nothing is ever entirely certain. Things can be more probable, but they can't be entirely certain. Where they can't be fixed, uh, but are always essentially in motion to some degree where their complexity can't be reduced simply to a, a, a um, tally of the parts, and where whatever it is, is interacting with a consciousness of the observer. And in many other aspects, which you know I, 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 I list in that last part, but those are just some of them. It's looking at a quite different kind of world, one that is entirely in tune with the picture that the right hemisphere holds of the world and which needs to be combined with what the left hemisphere knows, but always in such a way that the left hemisphere's knowledge or understanding or take or whatever we like to call it, is under the aegis of that of the right hemisphere. It's not an equal partnership. This is because if you are asking part of your consciousness to be um, latched onto some very tiny specific detail, you cannot at the same time be asking it to take a picture of the whole world whatever else is going on that is if you like delegated to the right hemisphere although i believe that evolutionary it's the other way round. That the left hemisphere has been delegated as the master delegates his emissary to go and do some admin as it were and all we know about the left hemisphere is it is literally less intelligent it is very good at doing certain known procedures that are rather like um bureaucratic procedures they're known they're fixed they're serial they're analytic all that is absolutely fine but as soon as there's something uh, relatively fresh new unknown complex then the right hemisphere has to take over and and I, although i definitely re- reject the um the metaphor of the brain as a computer i sometimes do say and I hope I won't be misunderstood, that the left hemisphere is somewhat like um, the personal computer of the right hemisphere. Our computer doesn't know the meaning of the data we put into it. It doesn't know the, the meaning of the data it spews out. But in that intermediate period, period, it's very well able to manipulate them. And there needs to be this, you know, if you like, splitting of labor. One consciousness can't do both of these things. In, in in the fable, the, the master delegates his emissary to go about and do certain things, because if the master was doing that, he couldn't hold his overall vision together. I mean, it's a myth, but it's an explanatory image.
1: Let me ask you a little bit about what you said earlier about being a process philosopher of sorts along the lines of Alfred North Whitehead. Often what science does is it simplifies things, right? In order to be able to make sense of them, manipulate them, make predictions. We create models. And models often are simplifying things that, that otherwise we already know are more complex. For example, you, I've heard you say, well, a mountain isn't really a static thing. It's a, it's a process. It's a wave. That's the best way of thinking about it. But is there something important in, in sort of simplifying the world and seeing it as things rather than as processes? And isn't that part of the success of, of science, as it were, that it has this ability to simplify? I'm just saying
0: that um, this way of looking at the world works quite well in a narrow-focused vision of some very small part, but my point is that you can't go from there to deducing that reality is effectively static. We've known from physics for more than 100 years that that won't sustain a, a view of the cosmos. And, you know, so many great physicists ha- have made this very point that it- it's not like this, but that actually consciousness is prior to matter, which I also believe. Well, actually, that's uh, that's just Trespass on territory we may be getting later, but it's at least as primitive, ontologically speaking, as uh, matter. Um, they may, in fact, be phases of the same thing, but that's, that's to take us a long way away from what you're asking. Moving I think through. we do yeah. lose an enormous amount enormous amount. You know, I'm a great admirer of the Heraclitean philosophy. And when you come to look at the paradoxes of Zeno and others that arose in the Greek world around that time, they are very often a conflict between the now much more salient left hemispheres take and the right hemispheres take. But there's no question which one is right. Uh, for example, in Achilles and the tortoise, the left hemisphere, in other words, creates a paradox by saying it's broken up into this infinite number of bits and an infinite number can't be completed. But actually, we know that in real real life, Achilles overtakes the tortoise in one or two strides. So we know it's not, it's not a good way to think about the world as a whole. Much better is to think of time as something that can only be broken up into bits after the fact. Much as a line can only be made of points, or sorry, it can never be made of points. It only has points after the fact, you can't make a line out of points because a point has no extension at all. You can have an infinite number of them. You will never get to the extension of a line. The same thing is
1: true of time. Ian, thank you very much again. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
0: Let's jump into Pepper's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles and bravely explore exciting places with Pepper Playset. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.